0: Desiree Berg, and welcome to the
1: 34th. Thank you so much for coming!
2: What do
3: you believe the biggest challenges facing our country? Um, I think the hyper-partisanship and the divisiveness is tearing our country apart. Uh, the greatest challenge for us to be able to come together and solve problems and move forward together as a country. If elected president, what would be the one of the first moves that you would make in terms of maybe pulling out of a country? Maybe making- well the, the greatest um, national security and existential threat that we face in this country is the new Cold War and nuclear arms race that's ensuing with increasing tensions between the United States and uh, nuclear armed countries like Russia and China. So one of the first things I'll do is call for a summit uh, with these two countries to begin the work, the diplomatic work, to de-escalate these tensions, work out differences that we have, find areas of common interest so that we can make progress towards uh, reducing the numbers of nuclear weapons in the world, putting an end to this nuclear arms race, and making it so that not the American people nor people of any other nation have to live in fear of nuclear war.
0: Congresswoman, um, so right after we left you today, that poll came out from New Hampshire. Yes. You are six percent in that poll. Yes. I want to get your reaction to that?
3: I'm, I'm grateful for the support that we're seeing uh, growing uh, in places like New Hampshire and in other states in the country. Uh, look, our, our uh, polls are moving in the right direction, uh, so it's encouraging. Um, I, I take the approach in our campaign of of uh, being the tortoise rather than the hare. And uh, so we were continuing to move forward and delivering our message and and we're seeing how it's resonating and that support is growing.
0: We have another candidate in the race right now who talks about questions if the country is ready for um, a female president or a woman of color president, I mean you're skyrocketing especially in that poll right now, do you want to just maybe address that issue? Uh,
3: I think the country is ready. I think what people are looking for is a president um, who can unify our country. Uh, who will put the best interests of our country first and who's qualified and ready to serve as commander-in-chief on day one.
4: Have you heard from Hillary Clinton
3: at (laughs) all? No. Are there any, neither directly nor indirectly? (laughs) Yes.
4: Hi. What is your opinion on what is
3: going on in Bolivia with Evo Morales, who was just ousted in what appears to be a US-backed coup? I'm I'm really gathering the facts and the information around this. I don't have the full picture the full story. Um, There are a lot of different narratives being brought forward on what has led uh, to his announced resignation. And so I need to get the facts first.
5: All right. Thank you. You Uh, you got a lot of uh, criticism for always meeting with Narendra Modi. Would you consider meeting with Irhan Khan as well, Prime Minister? And if you did, what would be your ideological approach to bringing peace to that region?
3: Yeah, of course. We've got to have uh, the courage to meet with leaders of other countries in the pursuit of peace and national security. Uh, look, India and Pakistan have a long standing uh, conflict with many issues that they need to resolve themselves. I think both leaders have recognized um, that's only through those direct negotiations and diplomacy that they do that. And I think, in the interest of peace, uh, given that these two countries are nuclear armed nations, um, to do what we can to be able to support those peaceful negotiations is in all all of our best interests. Thank you.
4: If you don't win the Democratic nomination, would you consider a third party run?
3: No. Anyone who says otherwise is not uh, interested in the truth. I've, I've been asked this question since probably I started running for president and every single time my answer has been the same. Uh, yet for some reason there are voices within uh, our political sphere who continue to traffic in this rumor-mongering. And I just think it's unfortunate because they know it's not true and they're using it as a way to try to undermine my campaign by... um making people suspicious that, that something else is going on. Nothing else is going on. I'm running for president. I plan on being the Democratic nominee that is best positioned to defeat Donald Trump. Thank
0: um, you. Wait, Thank you. A quick question. Up, up there, you talked about how you don't have many field offices um, at a time when other campaigns are closing offices, slashing staff, you have a lean campaign. Talk to me about your strategy just of your campaign right now and how you expect to get, a, get the nomination the way you're running it right now. Uh,
3: well. You're seeing a lot of people who opened a lot of field offices now having to shut them down. And some of those people are seeing their poll numbers dropping. My trend in polling is moving in the right direction. We are using, uh, being very fiscally responsible with the hard-earned resources people are donating to our campaign and using those dollars to reach voters directly. Uh, I give so much credit to our incredible volunteers who are pouring their heart and passion and time and resources uh, into this campaign because they believe in our mission of putting service above self and the change that we are trying to bring about. I think there's nothing more powerful than that to help us win this Thank election.
0: Thank you. I asked Tulsi why she supported the anti-BDS resolution and she had this to say. One quick question. You took a lot of slack for voting yes on the BDS resolution from the progressive plank of the party because they thought it seemed out of proportion where you've been in the past. What is your response to that?
3: Uh, Look, I have always stood in support for people exercising their right and freedom to protest. Uh, For those who choose to do that through the BDS movement, I stand solidly behind making sure that neither our state government or our federal government uh, attempts to punish them in any way for that—that that directly undermines our freedom of speech. There's maybe just a point of disagreement. I personally don't think that—that uh, that is the best way to achieve peace um, and move us closer toward or move them closer towards a two-state solution. I think it's a, it's a difference. It's a difference on 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 uh, the approach. To get there, for for those who have a different approach, I respect their right. Uh, I just I don't think it's it's the best or the only way to get there. Sorry, I, I need thank to steal you. her
0: note. And let's listen into the town hall.
3: Yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you, Richard. And thank you for your service, Richard, my family. I'm also a product of the Vietnam War, uh, my family being refugees from Vietnam. Um, I want to tell you why I support Tulsi Gabbard, but first I want to thank Tulsi for her service as well this being Veterans Day and uh, two tours in the Middle East, continuing service as a major in the Hawaii National Guard. And, um, and I want to thank you for your continued service not just on the battlefield of war, but on the battlefield at Capitol Hill. And really uh, the constant sacrifice that you make every single day for us, the attacks on your character, the smears, the uh, just from our most prominent political figures, you are truly fighting for us. And I can't thank you enough for that because it, it means so much to us that somebody is standing up for integrity, for true morality for this nation, for ethics, and, and others would shirk away from that. But you don't. You stand tall, you take those hits, and you're doing it for us. So thank you so much for all of your service thank to you. all of us. Thank you. I support Tulsi Gabbard. So I support Tulsi because she understands that the greatest threat to our nation is the industry of war, that our nation has reached a point where we no longer fight battles for genuine humanitarian crises or to genuinely defend our nation. But instead, we fight wars for profit, for corporate gains, for power, for control. And this has become the greatest threat to our nation because so many of our dollars are going away to the Different sides of the political aisle. Many of us here are from uh, Republicans, to Democrats, to Libertarians, to Progressives, to Independents. And that is why uh, the very first show I ever did on Tulsi was, I believe, and I still believe this to this day, that she has the best chance of beating Donald Trump. And it's because she's able to bring us all together from all these various sides of the political spectrum because we are all here today in solidarity of this one idea of knowing that the endless wars need to end and that Tulsi Gabbard is the one candidate who is standing up for this, who's standing up against this giant behemoth of a machine When she signed up to to be in the military to fight for us, this is not the type of battle. These wars that we are seeing today are not the types of wars that she believed she was going off to fight. And today, as we honor the many veterans across this nation and many of you who are in this room right now, these were not the wars that you thought you were going to fight for us. You thought you were going to defend our nation, to truly help people that are in genuine need. And instead, it's just turned out to be, in many ways, giant power grabs. And these are the things that many of us want to end. And we see that Tulsi is finally this candidate that's coming forward, who's bringing us all together, who will help us end these wars, bring America back to the American people, and bring restore morality and ethics and honor to our nation. So I am very, I, I feel very fortunate that I was asked to do this. So thank you Thanks. for letting me introduce you. It's an absolute honor. So, Tulsi Gabbard, everybody, our next American president.
3: Kim Iverson, everybody. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for um, your voice that you are bringing and raising shining the light on so many different issues and uh, bringing the truth forward at a time when truth can be hard to find. Uh, I wanna say thanks to Richard for starting us off with a Pledge of Allegiance. Thanks to our many amazing volunteers here who have worked hard to make this happen. And thank you all. It is so good to see you. It's great to be back here in LA and I'm so grateful you chose to spend a little time out of your Veteran's Day here with all of us. And to kick us off, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask all of our veterans or family members of those who've served, if you can please stand and just let us recognize you. This is our day, this is our day. Thank you for your service, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for opening your heart. Thank you. Thank you. You know, my family knows this, that whenever I am around our troops or around veterans, I feel right at home because I know I'm amongst family. And I'm so grateful to be able to be here as we observe Veterans Day here with all of you. Uh, I started out this morning doing one of my favorite things, got up at 5 o'clock and went for a little drive and jumped in the ocean, went for a surf, it was awesome. (laughs) It was glassy, there was no wind, there was not too many people out, caught some waves, and then made our way to join uh, the LA County uh, veterans, first ever veterans celebration uh, held at the LA Memorial Coliseum. It was a really special thing. You know, there were probably 1,500 people who came out. I was surprised that that was the first ever, but it was the first ever. There were like 12 or 13 different honor guards. The Tuskegee Airmen were there. We had people from across generations who came out to celebrate veterans, but really what does it mean? What, what are we really celebrating? Service. Service, exactly. Exactly, I'm grateful. I've, I um, first enlisted in April of 2003, shipped off shortly thereafter to Fort Jackson, South Carolina for my basic training. It was at the heart of summer in South Carolina. It was the first time I had ever seen, after morning PT at 5.30 in the morning, steam rising from people's bodies. That was a new experience for me. There were a lot of other people there today who apparently had the same thing. I talked a little bit about it. But throughout all of my years of service, it's going on 17 years now, throughout my two deployments to the Middle East, I'm just grateful to have been able to serve alongside so many uh, great patriots, people who truly exemplify, who embody what it means when we talk about service above self. I think on days like today, we're used to hearing year after year speeches coming from politicians and others and saying a lot of flowery words and saying thank you for your service and all of these things. But actions speak louder than words. Talk is cheap. Gratitude is good, and it is important, but what are our leaders actually doing to back that up with action to truly honor and thank the service of our men and women in uniform? I don't know about you, but I have found it to be deeply frustrating to hear these speeches on Veterans Day, and then the very next day, See many of these same politicians turning their back on us, saying, you know what, there's just not enough. There is not enough resources available to make sure that we are providing a roof over the head of every single homeless veteran. that these politicians who are more interested in their own selfish interests than they are in actually fulfilling this same mission of service, than they are in, in embodying these values of service above self, telling us that as more and more veterans and more Americans are falling victim to this opioid epidemic ravaging our country, that veterans coming home with post-traumatic stress or chronic injuries that came from their service in combat. When they go to the VA, the VA is not allowed to prescribe them any other alternative like medicinal marijuana, instead of the highly addictive opioids that are too often doled out like candy. But these politicians who don't want to do what is necessary to make sure that our generation of post 9-11 veterans do not fall victim to the same thing that Vietnam veterans faced with Agent Orange. How many of you here know about or were exposed to toxic burn pits while deployed at any point in the Middle East? All right, a few of you here. Toxic burn pits are the Agent Orange of our generation of veterans. We were deployed to a camp in Iraq about 40 miles north of Baghdad. It was a relatively large camp that housed people from all across all branches of service in the US military as well as other service members from NATO allied countries. It was a very large camp. There was a massive burn pit where everything was burned, everything all forms of waste, everything you could possibly imagine, everything got dumped into that burn pit. We had soldiers from our unit and other units whose place of duty every single day was to go there and man that burn pit. Can you imagine the kinds of toxins that not, not only they were exposed to, but that basically created this ever-present cloud of crud, as we called it, over our camp. This is what we breathe every single day. As a result, we are seeing many of our brothers and sisters in uniform coming back, often having been exposed for year after year, deployment after deployment, with very rare uh, cancers, uh, respiratory illnesses, and other things that normally would not impact so many people of this age. Unfortunately, rather than actually saying, yes, we recognize this combat-related illness, the VA, we will take care of you, no, they're asking for proof. Vietnam veterans fought for decades, decades, to get the care that they have earned through their service because of their exposure to Agent Orange, many dying of cancer before ever getting that care or getting that recognition. We are seeing the very same thing happen now with politicians saying, well, the VA says we need proof, so we've gotta figure out how to get that proof. Another generation at risk of being left behind. These are the things that are so frustrating to us because we hear the words and people are saying thank you, but then we see these same politicians going and being the very same ones who will go and beat their war drums to send us on more unnecessary, wasteful wars, to go and wage more counterproductive regime change wars that have nothing to do with our interests in this country, that actually undermine our national security. And then once again, after doing so, when we come back, they are not there to take care of us. To me, Veterans Day is a reminder of what it means to honor those who serve. It's more than just thanks. It is taking action. It is taking action. There are many people who pay the price for war. I served in a field medical unit during that first deployment where every single day my first task was to go through a list name by name of every single American service member that had been injured in the previous 24 hours. Go through that list name by name, recognizing that these weren't just names on a sheet of paper. This is my family. These are my brothers and sisters. And behind every one of those names are a husband or a wife, mom or dad, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, anxiously awaiting their return. Concerned every single day for their safety and well being, losing sleep at night, worried that they may one day get that knock on the door. I wondered then how many of our politicians were losing sleep at night thinking about them, thinking about those who were paying the price for the consequences, the the consequences of the decisions that they were making. My guess was not very many, not very many. We came home from that deployment, leaving some of our brothers and sisters in uniform behind, those who paid the ultimate price, those whose families never got to say goodbye leaving that eternal emptiness in their absence. When we came home, we landed at Hickam Air Force Base. It was early in the morning. The sun was just about to rise. Stepped off that plane. The air never smelled so sweet in my life. But all of our families were there. Our families were there. They had made handwritten signs and saying, Welcome home looking forward to this day we had all been looking forward to this day we stood in formation there were a few hundred of us at least listening to our commanding officer finally giving that one last speech waiting for the one word we'd all been anxious to hear dismissed <laughs> at that point the whole place you know went crazy <laughs> All of us just running back into the arms of our families, back into the arms of our loved ones. I went there, first person I hugged was my dad. I had never, ever seen my dad shed a tear in my life until that moment. And as I gave him a hug, I felt his body, he was sobbing and he was crying, just tears of relief. Until that moment, I really didn't realize the kind of stress and sacrifice and anxiety that our military family members, our loved ones at home go through. You know, as we're deployed, we're focused on our mission, we're focused on getting that task completed. It's our families and loved ones who are left behind, holding down the fort and struggling and wondering and worrying for that day that we come home. These are the people who are paying the price for the decisions that politicians are making about where and when our men and women in uniform are sent into harm's way. Our veterans, our service members deserve to have leaders in Congress, deserve a commander in chief who is willing to make the kinds of sacrifices that our men and women in uniform make, who places that premium on putting service to the American people in our country above all else. (laughs) Leaders in Washington who are solely focused on putting the interests of the American people ahead of the military industrial complex, ahead of the interests of foreign countries, ahead of partisan politics, putting the interests of our people and our country and our freedoms and our principles enshrined in our Constitution above all else. We deserve a Commander-in-Chief who takes that oath of office seriously to support and defend our Constitution. And in doing so, actually reads it And understands what it says in Article 1 that provides Congress with the authority and responsibility to decide whether or not to declare war. It's unfortunate that we even have to bring these things up, but this is where we are, unfortunately, in this country, where this is the standard that we, the people, need to set for our leaders, that our leaders can look to the examples of so many great Americans who are literally living and breathing and embodying that principle of service. Look to their example for inspiration on how we can truly become a government of, by, and for the people. I'm running for president and offering to serve you to be that Commander-in-Chief. To bring those values to our White House. To bring those values to our White House, those values and principles of integrity, honor, respect, and service to the presidency leading a nation of Americans who stand united on those principles enshrined in our Constitution, respecting each other as fellow Americans. Even as we approach many challenges differently, as we have different ideas on how we can solve the problems that we are facing today, as we come from different political backgrounds or have different ideas, that no matter what, we respect each other as fellow Americans. That that we feel that same sense of unity that those of us who've worn the uniform feel, whether at home or abroad, where we have people from all different backgrounds, different races, ethnicities, religions, orientations, people who represent the beautifully diverse fabric in this nation, wearing the uniform, focused as one unit on accomplishing that mission of service. A house divided cannot stand. Our country is terribly divided at this time. There are many challenges that we face. If we have any hope of being able to move forward together towards that brighter future that promises peace and prosperity and justice and equality and opportunity. It requires us to stand united, to stand together as Americans, inspired by that love of country, that love and care for each other, that love and respect for our planet to be able to accomplish that. And by doing so, and by doing so, what we realize what could be more patriotic than fighting to make sure that every single one of our brothers and sisters in this country get the quality health care that we need when we need it, no matter what. That when we do that, we realize what could be more patriotic than standing united to make sure every single person here has clean water to drink, clean air to breathe, a safe environment to live in, preserving and protecting the natural resources that we have. What could be more patriotic than standing up and fighting for reforms to our criminal justice system, to our immigration system? to our education system making sure that at every single level in our government that policies are being passed that are keeping the well-being of our people at the forefront getting rid of the corporate greed and the crony capitalism that has created such a poisonous impact on our lives this is at the heart of the change that we know we need to bring about. And it's days like this on Veterans Day that serve as a great reminder of how we get that done. This is the question that I get asked most often is, okay, that's fine, You know, everybody's got a lot of plans and got a lot of big ideas, but how will you actually get it done? How will you get it done when we are living in a country that unfortunately is pitting one group of people against the other, that people spend so much time screaming at each other rather than listening, understanding, (laughs) respecting each other. So this provides us with a guide way, the path on how we can do so going forward, respecting each other for who we really are, respecting each other as fellow Americans so that we can begin this dialogue, so that we can come together and work together to achieve what we know we can and what we know we must. Thank you all for being here today. I wanna open it up for some questions and start our dialogue and our conversation here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you all, you're so awesome. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. Thank you very much. Thank you. I want to make the most of the time that we have. And uh, let's get... Yes, sir. Let's start with you. I'm going to go
2: down now. Is that okay? Hello, everyone. Uh, Tulsi. Uh, My name is Ronnie Kroll. And I came here tonight because I genuinely believe in what you, Tulsi, are saying. You're not just saying words. Your actions are backing it up. And I took a lot of flack from my friends in the LGBT community for coming and supporting you here because I'm a man first. I'm an American, and I also happen to be gay. But I don't vote with my sexual orientation. I vote for the candidate that I believe can bring us all together. So I needed to say that first. Thank you. You nailed it on the view. (laughs) view. And I want you to know, for all of us out there, I don't consider myself to be a Republican or a Democrat. I'm somewhere in between, and I think most Americans are fed up with politicians. So what can I do To go back to people that I know and love, my friends and family, and what can I say to them about your past with your uh, being against LGBT and I know you grew up with a family that didn't really understand us or support us, Mm -hmm. how can we know not only in words but in actions that we have your support and just how can we support you as American citizens that want to see us finally heal? because I don't know about you guys, but I'm exhausted waking up every day dealing with this bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot. But What can I do to support you and how can I come my Thank
3: you. Thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for all that you're bringing to the dialogue we're having here, but it sounds like the dialogue you may be having in your own life with people who are around you. Yeah, it's frustrating. It is. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to answer his question. Thank you, sir. Um, actions speak louder than words. I've been in Congress now for nearly seven years. And I would ask uh, your friends and those who have concerns about previous positions that I held when I was very young uh, to look at what my actions have been, how I have carried through on my commitment to fight for equality for every single American. Uh, I am a member of the Equality Caucus in Congress, uh, have been a co-sponsor of and recently voted for the Equality Act that we recently passed out of the House of Representatives, and have uh, a whole host of different issues that I've worked with my colleagues on to continue to fight against and bring about an end to the kind of discrimination that unfortunately still takes place uh, within our country against LGBTQ Americans, whether we're talking about at work or at school, or even just trying to find a place to live. Uh, When I speak, as I do very often, about freedom and equality and justice, uh, these are not just words that sound good. Uh, These are the, the ideals that we strive forward to achieve as we make progress towards that more perfect union. I remain committed to fighting for that equality and justice for every American regardless of race or gender or orientation or religion, and will continue to do so as President of the United States.
2: Yes, thank you, thank you very much. Nice.
3: Let's go on this side of the room. Yes, sir. Yes.
5: My name is Gary Alexander. I served in the U.S. Navy for four years.
3: Thank you, Gary.
5: During the Vietnam War, I served in the Navy, and then in 1980, I went the Army for three years to as a soldier. So I'm a soldier. So who do you root for in the football game? That's the real question. I know. Okay.
3: <laughs> Switzerland. I know, got got it. it. Okay. Okay.
5: <laughs> My question. All right. Veterans have pretty good right now. Some. And they're to be getting a little better. But why do they not help us with dental? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, <laughs> <either. laughs> I have a rock plate and I have a few teeth in the mouth I developed a little cat because I got a little and they <laughs> <laughs> Anyway.
3: I appreciate your honesty and transparency <laughs> so
5: much. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, um, I went to the <laughs> VA and for other things. I've been in Palo Alto. I was living in San Jose, and I just moved down here. And I asked them about getting the tooth fixed, and we don't do that. Yeah. Well, they'll pull your tooth, but they won't fix it. Yeah. So, my problem with that is, okay, veterans that don't have good teeth to eat properly, yeah. when you don't eat right, like, your health goes bad because you can't get the proper nutrition because you can't get some of the foods. So uh, if
2: they got the dill part working right, they're going to chew the food properly and they're going to be more healthy, so I don't know if you're talking about it. I agree.
3: I agree. Thank you. Thank you for you want to add to that?
2: No,
3: definitely not. Okay, let, let me answer his question. All right.
2: Um,
3: your, your, your concern is valid. Uh, this is also a problem with the existing Medicare program that does not cover dental. And I think it goes to the heart of our healthcare system that for so long does not recognize how directly connected dental hygiene and dental care is to our overall health and well being. Uh, This is something that we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of our underserved communities in in my home state of Hawaii, for example, where there's just no access even for kids to be able to go to the dentist or community health centers that don't have enough dental resources. Uh, We start to see many other layers of impacts on overall health that come from poor oral care. And, uh, and no ability to get that dental care. So under my administration, we would expand that coverage both within Medicare as well as the DA, uh, VA to include uh, dental, hearing, and vision.
5: Thank you. Uh, I really um, just want to say, kind of this is an echo chamber, so I'm just going to provide another echo in it bit more. Uh, it is rare, indeed it is it is exceedingly rare for a prominent Washington politician to uh, refuse or refrain from engaging partisan politics yep. as we all know. Mm-hmm. It is uh, even more rare for a prominent Washington politician to actually make a sincere effort to <laughs> Bridge the gap to uh, combat the divisiveness of yeah. this nation, and uh, I really I think we all, speaking for veterans and non-veterans, alike, we all salute you in your sincere efforts mm-hmm. to unify Thank you. this. What I would like, because we know, you know, the in, the intentions can be there, but how do you see the media's role, both the mainstream as well as the alternative media, how do you see the, the media's role in, in backing you up in this effort to unify this country? Thank you.
3: <laughs> the corporate media, unfortunately, has... Uh, well, well, look, they're driven by profits. They're driven by profits, so you know we have uh, a, you know a media that is supposed to be providing us with the news, but the news has become a part of the profit-bearing um, portion of their business plan, rather than separating the entertainment from the news. Uh, so, if you look at what drives up ratings, it's conflict. It's you know the um, the buzzwords and it's the sound bites and it's all this stuff that unfortunately is part of the problem that is tearing us apart. So we're not getting any backup there, unfortunately. Um, you know, as far as new media or alternative media, yeah, you know, it depends on where you go. I think some are contributing to having a good discourse and dialogue where you have some platforms where they're not afraid to bring people together who may have differing views and differing opinions and actually have a good. Um, good, good debate, healthy debate. And maybe they end up agreeing at the end of it. Maybe they don't. But I think all of us feel better having maybe listened or being party to that conversation. I think that's what we need more of. So even as I get, uh, uh, hypocrisy just astounds me because, you know, I'll go and do interviews on Fox News. I'll do interviews on CNN, MSNBC, I'll do interviews on a whole variety of podcasts or YouTube shows, and I'll get criticized for going on Fox News or talking to Republicans or reaching out to independents. But at the same time, from the same people in the media, the same people in the political establishment, they say, well, gosh, how are we going to win people over? (laughs) to support our ideas as Democrats, how are we going to beat Donald Trump unless we do that? So, you know, I'll tell you, yes, I'm running for president to defeat Donald Trump, but our mission is much bigger than that. Our mission is much bigger than that. Our mission is to bridge these divides, to bring people together, so that we can do the people's work. This cannot be about partisan politics. Because this, the problems that have needed solving for so long have become the casualties of the hyperpartisanship in Washington that are leaving people behind, struggling to live paycheck to paycheck. Parents who can't afford the insulin for their kids who have diabetes. People who are living on a limited income because they're retirees and relying on social security and can't afford to keep a roof over their head. There are so many of these issues that we face that we hear politicians talking about over and over and over and over again. But what is actually being done to bridge that divide? Look, the House and the Senate constantly changes hands, right? So Democrat, Republican, back and forth, back and forth. The problem is you have leaders in both parties who are only looking to the next election rather than immediately after election day saying, okay, let's come together, let's have a meeting. Leaders from both parties, chairmen from both parties, members of Congress saying, hey, how can we come together so we can make sure that Social Security is sufficient in this rising cost of living that we are dealing with? How can we make sure that we are in providing that quality health care for everybody? There's a long laundry list of issues. We cannot do it if we're only focused on putting one team's interests ahead of the other. I wanna tell a short story on, on how I started to uh, develop those relationships and fi- found a way to do this outreach immediately after I got elected as a member of Congress in 2012. I thought of uh, the fact that I'm coming in as a freshman Democrat with a Republican majority, being told don't even try to pass a bill through Congress because Republicans won't let you do it. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, there's no way I'm going to sit around and do nothing. I needed to find a way to be able to get to know and to work with my colleagues in Congress. So I started thinking about what's, what's the one thing that I know, maybe not all, but most of us have in common, the common language, universal language of food. You guys know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. So I I made a call to my mother in Hawaii. She makes this incredible macadamia nut toffee. And I asked her if she would make 434 boxes of toffee. Small thing. No big deal, right? She said, oh, yeah, okay, great. I think that's an awesome idea. I'm in. I said, I'm not done. I've got one more, f- another four, uh, four hundred thirty-five bigger boxes of toffee for the staff of every member of Congress. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> Gotta make sure we get those phone calls returned. You know what I mean? <laughs> and she paused just for a moment. I could tell she was thinking, like, okay, I'm gonna have to buy this many more pounds of macadamia nuts and all of this. But she said, I think that's that's a great idea. So she's in Hawaii, she starts chopping the mac nuts, stirring two pots of toffee at one time, pouring it. Uh, My dad is the self-appointed quality control guy who took a slice out of every single pan just to make sure it was okay. I was in DC while they were doing this, handwriting personal notes to every single one of my new colleagues, learning more about them in the process, and signing each one just saying, I look forward to serving alongside you. What was incredible to me what was incredible to me was how quickly I got a response. Once we started delivering these little gifts of aloha, when we're on the house floor for votes, which is the only time we're all in the same physical space together at the same time, there were Republicans, high ranking, serving as chairman of powerful committees, and people from other parts of the country or other committees, people who I wouldn't normally get to know at all. Making that long walk from the Republican side to the Democratic side. Looking for me, finding me, and just saying thank you. Thank you. I ate all the toffee. I need more to take home to my family this weekend. And then, most importantly, saying, tell me what's going on in your district in Hawaii. Tell me what your constituents are most concerned about. I serve on this committee or that committee or I've got a lot of experience or background in this area or that area. Let's figure out a way to work together. That simple, small gesture of reaching out with respect, with aloha. Not saying, well, I'm only gonna give it to these guys because I think they're cool or they'll agree with me or they're on my team. No, reaching out with respect to every single one of these elected leaders in Congress. Let's serve together. That laid a foundation that made it possible for me to be effective, to serve my constituents, to serve our country, to pass the very first bill that I introduced into Congress in a record period of time, getting it passed through both houses and signed into law by President Obama in the first year that I was in office to pass important amendments. To pass important amendments in different bills, for example, relating to Native Hawaiian education, something that people said Republicans would never allow to be passed. But when my amendment came up for a vote, and Republicans were told that they should vote against the Gabbard Amendment to reauthorize the Native Hawaiian Education Act, because I had established those relationships with my colleagues that started with toffee, yes. They answered my phone calls, they, they texted me or found me on the house floor or stopped me in the halls to say, hey, they're telling us to vote against your amendment. Tell me why I should vote for it. So I had the opportunity to share with them why this was important to kids, not only in Hawaii, but across the country. What happened as a result? We won. That amendment got passed with an overwhelming vote of support. But making progress on these issues, yes, it takes work. It requires us to be able to get to know each other. But this is only possible, you know, fighting for equality, fighting for an end to discrimination for our LGBTQ Americans, fighting for criminal justice reform, fighting to protect our environment against the threat of climate change. All of these things require us to be able to build these bridges, yes, as leaders in Congress but also within our own communities. To not be afraid to reach out to somebody and say, okay, well, you voted for Trump, maybe I voted for Bernie Sanders. Let's have a conversation. This is the practical how-to in our everyday lives that we actually turn our words here tonight into action. This is the kind of leadership that I'll bring as president, where immediately immediately, I'm going to call for regular meetings at least once a month with Republican and Democrat leaders in the House and the Senate so that we can sit around the table and start to really communicate about how we can do the work of the people. All right, we're going to take one on this side. Yes, ma'am. Last question? Yes. I
1: could
3: yell,
4: but I'll use the mic.
3: (laughs) Hi, uh, my name is Anna Minnie
4: and I'm from Carson and I'm a Republican. Don't trip, I'm not afraid to say openly say that.
3: <laughs> but I, I have a feeling you're not alone here tonight. Oh, no
4: worries, no worries. But the issue that I have is I'm a local president, you president from Asking Little Widow the City Across. I saw you speak at our international forum back in Las Vegas. Yes. One of the things I just want to let you know is that you embody exactly what I encourage our members is that we as public servants should serve our community with a servant's heart. So I want to thank you for that. Thank for you. It. Thank you for your
3: leadership and bringing that message home. So one of the things
4: I really want to, to press on you, and also to this whole group, is what are you going to do to hold our federal officials accountable for all the money that they squander? I'm public sector. We have constantly, the services that we provide the community is first impact. We impact you first before federal. But what happens is we're not holding our federal officials or our state officials accountable for the money that is sent and it barely makes it to yeah. us. And we as public servants have to provide more services on less money. Yeah. It's, not even, it's not even a beer budget, the champagne taste. We're not even at the water level. And part of the problem we also have is that as public sector employees, we don't have enough affordable housing. Yeah. Our own members can't even afford to live in the very communities that they serve. That is a problem. Yes. And for those in the audience, affordable housing is not the same thing as low income. That's right. When you have management who are making $80,000 a year and they can't even live in the same communities, and we're talking about two households. Yeah. You know, you've got people in public sector, teachers, and working in public Mm -hmm. sector, good government jobs, good Mm -hmm. service, but yet they can't afford. They can't afford to live. Yeah. I just met, I'm sorry enough to call you out, she lives out in an oh, in upland. Yeah. I have quite a few members who live outside of our county. LA County is too bloody expensive. Mm-hmm. Straight up bloody gas is like, like, oh, don't even get me started on that. Yes, I drive a new car, I should probably drive driving her friendly car, but I downgraded from a truck, okay? So that is my- Your progress, answer. there you but go. what exactly are you gonna do to hold our public sector officials accountable because this is too much and people are leaving the public sector to go private because it's just, it's an Yeah. So I'd like to know
3: what your thoughts are on that. Sure, thank you. Thank you for choosing to serve in the public sector because these jobs across this public sector, they are public service jobs. If you were in it just for the money, you would have chosen a different (laughs) path, exactly. Uh, look, it starts with leadership. It starts with what kind of culture of leadership we are setting. Uh, I talked a little bit earlier about, okay, where is, where is all of our taxpayer dollars going uh, in the context of foreign policy? That because of these uh, constant and countless regime change wars we've been waging since 9-11 alone, we as taxpayers have seen over $6 trillion taken out of our pockets taken out of our schools, taken out of our hospitals, taken out of our infrastructure needs, taken out of our communities to continue to go and wage these wasteful counterproductive wars that actually are counter to and undermine our interests in this country, our national security interests and the interests of our community. So just as we uh, must hold uh, the Department of Defense fiscally accountable and responsible. Same goes for each of our federal agencies, going through and saying, hey, what's the objective of these programs and departments? What are we actually trying to accomplish? How does it serve the common good and well-being of the people in our country? And looking at the costs that go into these programs, if they're not effective, if they're not actually helping people get more affordable housing, then those dollars should not be wasted. the problem I think sometimes you know these and I've seen this these these things go uh, programs that are started maybe with good intention a long time ago continue to go on and go on and get reauthorized uh, without really taking that hard look having that self audit of what exactly are we trying to accomplish and are we being the responsible custodians of taxpayer dollars that we as elected leaders and leaders in our federal government uh, have to be thank you All right, I'm gonna take one last question, yes ma'am, in the back. Yes.
1: I'm coming. Hi, I'm really happy that you're vegan, and you're anti-war, and I'd love to see you in the White House. And I wanted to know what you will do to preserve Americans' medical freedoms, because as a Californian, I'm extremely concerned that over the, years, have had removal of both religious and medical exemptions for vaccines, having watched uh, the documentary Vaxxed, which I highly recommend. It shows extreme corruption at the CDC, and we desperately need to have our freedoms over our own bodily autonomy preserved. Uh, I'd love to have your support on this. Thank
3: you. I haven't seen that documentary yet. Um, this... Uh, awesome. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about this issue. I, I need to learn more about what's been going on here uh, in California. Um, I'm conflicted, my honest answer to you, on this. Because I understand the need for the preservation of personal choice. There are also public health concerns that exist in this area as well. So I need to do my work to be able to give you a solid answer. But like this, as with every other issue, I'm going to do my own homework before taking a position on this. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know there are so many more questions here. We don't have a lot of time tonight. I wanted to allow for some time to be able to stop and just meet and greet and say hello to you guys before uh, we have to leave here. I want to say thank you most of all for your making the choice to come here tonight and to be a part of the solution. I want to invite you to join our movement, to join our campaign. California is voting very early this year in March, and we need your help. We need your support. I will be in the next debate on November 20th. Thanks to the support of so many of you. We're going to make the most. We're going to make the most of that opportunity. I think we are. Uh, we are about 5,000 contributions short of the requirement for the December debate. The point being, our campaign is truly, in every single respect, a people-powered campaign. We take no PAC money, no lobbyist money. <laughs> And I'll be honest with you, you know, we we get uh, a critical eye from some of the media and political operatives asking us why we don't have uh, a number of field offices or physical headquarters opened up in different states. And I'll tell you why. It's because we're saving money and because with the Internet we have virtual headquarters, we have people's garages and living rooms and volunteers who are working out of the back of their cars. We are bringing our message directly to people, not waiting for them to come to us. And I want to ask all of you to come here and to help us in this mission because we got a lot of work to do. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. i going
1: to do really quickly. A minute, I just got to make an important announcement. Tulsi is going to speak to the press for a few minutes, and while she's doing that, we're going to very quietly and <laughs> as quiet as possible. I know you guys are excited, but we're going to line up against that wall, okay? And you're just going to wait there, and please, nobody rush N- nicely. And also, please, I'm not done. Hold on.